Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. Rick Thomas here. We are in the middle of my book, Help My Marriage Has Grown Cold. This is a long-form case study with my friend Mabel, who has recognized that she has made a mistake in her perspective about Mary and Biff. She's found out five years into the marriage that Biff is into pornography. As he has come, as she has come to counseling, we have begun discovering things as we have started with an an excavation of her theology, and then out of that, we've been dealing with uh, her understanding and practice of the gospel in her life, and then we have delved into her uh, need deficit theories, where she has taken a lot of desires and have morphed them or metastasized them into needs that have been controlling in her life. What we have come to in the last chapter, chapter 5, is that Mabel has a self-sufficient or a self-reliant worldview that she is practicing. And so what I want to do here in chapter 6 is I want to get inside her self-reliance and unpack it so that we can have a clear view of what is going on going on in her orthopraxy, the way that she practices the Bible in her life. If you have not downloaded Help My Marriage Has Grown Cold, please go over to our store, and it is a free download. It is a digital download. There are nine chapters. I'm working through all nine of them. Again, it is a long-form case study that would be a, a huge beneficial tool for anyone that wants to understand discipleship, but it would also be an excellent tool just to benefit from to see how a discipleship process can go or a biblical counseling process can go with a particular issue. And so there's a lot to learn here. There's a lot to apply. Please get help. My marriage has grown cold at lifeovercoffee.com. And you can go through these nine chapters on our website also. I am producing nine videos, nine podcasts, nine articles, and I'm spending more time than just the straight read of the book that is in the store. And so you can benefit from all of this together, and I trust that it would be an encouragement and practical help to you. And please let other people know. I think it will help a lot of people, and so you could help us by sharing this content. In fact, all of our resources with other people. At lifeovercoffee.com, we create resources hoping to spark conversations that lead to transformation. We believe that there is hope and help in the gospel, that any two people can come together over coffee. We can do life over coffee, and we can encourage and spur one another on, so use this resource or anything else that you find at lifeovercoffee.com. This is chapter six. I've titled it Our Common Faith Killers. The scenario that I set up in the last uh, chapter, number five, is that there are only three reasons a person will not trust God. And when we don't trust God, we are going to rely on ourselves. That is the only option. The illustration that I used was a time many years ago when our son was two years old. I placed him on a communion table. I asked him to jump into my arms. He did. He trusted his father. And then I inverted the illustration and said, well, what if he did not trust me, that he did not uh, jump into my arms, that he chose the self-reliance of the communion table. He chose his own intuition to 
to take care of business rather than trusting me. And so he didn't jump. He stayed. Well, if he would not trust me, if he would not obey what I asked him to do, well, then there would be three reasons. I am only aware of three reasons that a person will not trust God. It will apply to what we're talking about with self-reliance, but any time a person says they don't trust God, they have a hard time trusting God, uh, they struggle with their faith, etc., you want to explore these three areas. Again, that's why I titled chapter six, Our Common Faith Killers. And so when a person doesn't trust God, you have to address these three primary reasons. Here they are. We cannot trust God if we are angry with Him. Now I'm going to explain these in just a moment. We cannot trust God, number two, if we are afraid of Him. And we cannot trust God if we do not know Him well. Now go back to my illustration of our son standing on the communion table. Let's say that he did not jump. Well, I am angry with you. Well, anger will always negate faith. You can't be angry at God and trust God at the same time. You cannot be angry at your daddy and trust your daddy at the same time. He could say that I'm afraid of you. I'm not sure what's going to happen here. Well, you cannot be afraid of God and trust him. Again, those are two faith killers, anger and fear. The third one, of course, is ignorance or lack of awareness, pockets of ignorance in our understanding of who God is. And that is common because we are growing in our understanding of God, and we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we're always growing in our awareness of God. But if you don't know who God is, then you can't trust what you do not know because a part of trusting is, is intellectual awareness. That is one aspect of trusting. Knowledge is one aspect of trusting. And so anger, fear, and ignorance are the three faith killers. And Mabel had a hard time trusting God, and it positioned her to succumb to a self-reliant worldview and practice. If we're not going to trust the Lord, then we must trust ourselves, making us self-reliant. And so I wanted Mabel to see these three things, these faith killers. And so in chapter 6 here, our sixth counseling session, I wanted to dismantle each faith killer so that she could have a lot of clarity hoping that we can move forward in a process of repentance. And so let me take each one of them, fear, anger, and ignorance, and just explain a little bit, and then I'll have some questions at the end. And so fear, faith killer number one, not necessarily in order, but it's on the list. At some level in her soul, she sinfully feared God. And the modifier here is sinfully, because we know that we are to fear God, but that is a reverential respect. That is awe of God. That is worshiping God. That is bowing down before God, fearing the Lord. Those are good things, but there can be a sinful fear of God, and this is what was operative in Mabel's heart. Now, Mabel thought that if she committed to follow him, regardless of what it costs or where it might take her, she might not get what, what she wanted. Now, I explained some of that in the last chapter because you, you could hear it in her statements. You could hear these fear-lay statements. She said, well, what if I, I saw these things that were wrong with Bip, but what if I break up 
with him. That is a fear-laced statement. And then she said, well, how long would it take to get another guy? And then she added, like, is there another guy out there? And then she concluded, or finally, finally she said, well, what will other people think that if we break up now, we're so far along in the process, and this is what everybody would, would expect. In all of those statements, you see fear, and because of that fear, she was not trusting God through the process. She was even going against her gut instinct. She was going against her intuition, because she said as she was walking down the aisle, she said, I knew that this was not right, but she went ahead and done it, did it anyway. She was fully trusting herself. She was not fully trusting God. There's this aspect of God that we are very familiar with, though we might not say this aloud, that God can take us farther than we ever wanted to go, and He might ask us to do more than we ever wanted to do. The Old Testament talks about God being a, a terrible God with banners, and we see this throughout the Old and New Testament where the people of God are challenged in ways that are beyond their ability to to accomplish the things that they're being asked to do. And that is exactly what Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 8 and 9, that God had burdened us beyond our strength. He intentionally pushes us beyond our ability to facilitate or fix the situation. He does that because he wants us to be jars of clay so that people would see the treasure in the jars of clay so that they would know that the power belongs to God and not to us. So sometimes he will put a thorn in our flesh so that his strength can be perfected in our weakness. And that is our kryptonite. We don't want to be in a vulnerable, weak position. And all of that is operative in all of our hearts, but it was lurking underneath and, and maybe heart as well, but she was not so inclined to it. She was not so self-aware to connect these dots like what she's connecting now after the fact. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis's book, which many of you are familiar with, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where there was that conversation, you know, God is not safe, but he is good. And so the beavers and Lucy are talking about Aslan, the picture of Christ in the book. And the conversation goes something like this, where they ask, is he safe? Is Aslan safe? And the beaver responds, safe? Well, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He is the king, I tell you. But that is the interplay, and that is the tension between what is safe and what is good. And we know that God is not safe. We see it loudly declared on Golgotha's hill. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that it pleased the Lord to crush him. Is God safe? Well, obviously he's not. But we can become so fixated on the lack of safety that we forget that God is good. He is the King, I tell you. And because we don't recognize or we don't practicalize the goodness of God in our lives, we can be controlled and managed by fear. And Mabel intuitively knew this. She knew that God was not safe, so she chose to take matters into her self-sufficient hands. She had a good in view. And when she looked at that good and thought about this, well, of course he's not safe, 
Well, she decided that her fear was going to override good common biblical sense, and so she chose Biff. She orchestrated the relationship, and again, this was so subtle that nobody could perceive this. She could hardly perceive it herself because she didn't understand the machinations of self-reliance and what she was actually doing inside her soul. But when a person does not trust God, you have to ask the question, what is killing our faith? And one of those things will always always be fear. The second one is anger. And so when I asked Mabel about anger toward God, she disdainfully replied that I could never be angry with God. And that is the typical response that you would get. And you really need to be apprised of this. Now, I had to... I believe I had to use the word anger, but I was ready to come back and footnote it because... When you talk about anger, good Christian people will say they'll hear the word and they'll think about explosions and throwing things across the room. Most Christians do not struggle this way, and that is a good thing. And so I had to explore this a little bit more. And as I explained that there are other forms of anger besides explosion, she began to relent and actually give me an ear. And so you do want to be careful when you talk about faith killers. And the truth is you can't be angry at God and trust him. But again, when you say anger, they're going to say, well, no, that's, that's not true of me. And of course, in most cases, you'll find that the anger that we're talking about is a low-grade fever that runs just under the surface of our lives, and it only manifests during times of, season, uh, uh, times of tension, and that is exactly what was going on with Mabel. I said in the last episode that there are many Christians who have this low-grade fever of anger that runs underneath the surface of their lives, and nobody knows about it, or it's so imperceptible. You might see it and look askance at it and then think, ah, nah, and then you just move on because it is just that subtle. But that is the kind of anger that can really sabotage our souls and actually compel us to start living a self-reliant lifestyle. The anger that I'm talking about, there's, let me give you several synonyms, and maybe that will help. The most common ones that I see, well, there's two. One is disappointment, disappointment with God, not getting what we want. You see a lot of that, and it, it's something to where we just need to pause, and we need to have this conversation because there are a lot of disappointed people. Now, it's okay to be disappointed in, in the moment. But I'm talking about extended disappointment, where a person just carries disappointment with them. Those are things that need to be explored. Now, Mabel, as we looked at in the very first chapter of Help My Marriage Has Grown Cold, you could hear the disappointment in her statements. I'm 28 years old. I've done everything that I'm supposed to do. She has a rhythm in her life that hits so many beats, but now there is this long gap between the last beat and the next beat of marriage. And so it's just not happening quick enough. And so there is this low-grade disappointment. And then the second one, anger synonym, is discontentment. Now, again, disappointment and discontentment in the moment, in the micro, that's not necessarily anger. It's just, boom, that happens. You're at a traffic light. I'm disappointed with what just happened here. But then you just move on, go on, and, okay, that's not a controlling anger issue. That's just a product of fallenness, and we overcome that and we overlook that and we move on. 
But when there is this low-grade ongoing disappointment that can go on for weeks and months and years as it was in Mabel's heart, and then tied to that is a discontentment as she was communicating in her very first counseling session. Well, then what you have are anger words that make up Mabel's psyche. And then you'll start finding other words too, like frustration and impatience and bitterness and discouragement and even unkindness. And so now there are other anger words that are glomming on uh, to her psyche, to her soul. So not only is she struggling with fear, she's afraid that God will not come through for her, she's also angry at God. And again, I know that sounds hyperbolic. It sounds almost like that's just out of bounds. But when you get inside of it and look at the machinations of anger, what you will see are words like discontentment and discouragement and disappointment and frustration and so forth. Mabel was too Christianized to say that she was angry with God. But with more reflection, she did admit that she was uh, was disappointed with God when she was 28 and she was still not married. In her mind, God did not come through for her. Therefore, what she do? She relied on her own self. She did it her way. When God does not come through for us, we are making an accusation. And we really need to hear that. And I think that we could serve our friends a whole lot more effectively if we would listen more effectively and hear what they are really saying, especially now that we're in the minutia of her idol factory, what's going on underneath her life. And so Mabel is afraid of God in certain ways, and it comes out. Mabel is angry with God in certain ways, and actually it has been longstanding. And then the third faith killer that has led her to a self-reliant, do it my way, I will get this done because God won't spirit, is ignorance, unawareness. So I don't mean ignorance in a derogatory way, but just to indicate a lack of knowledge or pockets of unawareness of certain things about God. Due to a lack of proper discipleship, Mabel had come to some poor conclusions about God. After a couple of hours of counseling, it became clear that Mabel struggled at different levels with all three of these faith killers. And that is exactly what you're going to find 99 times out of 100, if not 100 out of 100. When you begin to explore someone's lack of trusting God at this level of their soul, you're going to find all three of these that are moving in and out of a person's psyche, but all of them at some point having control over her or over their psyche. Mabel began to see why she was unwilling to wait and trust God and would instead take matters into her own hands. Mabel had become angry and bitter toward God and also Biff because now when all this came out about Biff, and so I want to be careful about saying this, but the pornography of Biff, that's that's an issue that will have to be dealt with uniquely and specifically to him, but it was also the heat that God used to just magnify this self-sufficient worship structure that was operative in her heart. And so I'm not letting Biff off the hook at all, but I'm seeing God using sin sinlessly over here because without this heat, 
Mabel would have continued on in their life, in her life. Uh, she would have continued on being regretful and disappointed, disappointed in Biff without knowing about the pornography. The division between them would continue to grow because it was never right in the first place. They were not moving together in a one flesh union. I mean, they were moving apart as she was walking down the aisle. As she said, she was looking at him knowing that this was not right. And so there was no way that they could get into true koinonia with each other. And so their marriages stumbled along for five years. And so finally, in God's mercy, he outed Biff. All of this came out, and then that just just brought so much heat into Mabel's life to where it brought her to a place to where she was willing to be vulnerable and transparent for the first time in like over a decade. Unwittingly in her heart, she had moved from a, a sense of her responsibility in the marriage to a subtle belief that God and Biff had wronged her. She was grow, Her regret was growing in bitterness. Her discontentment and her disappointment was also growing as well. There were multiple things glomming onto her psyche, but it all began with those three faith killers that were operative in her life way longer, way before she ever met Bill. She was afraid of God. She was angry at God. And she had pockets of ignorance about God. And things just got worse from there until finally God outed Biff, exploded Mabel's heart to where we could see these things laying on the table. Mabel had an idea of what marriage should be like. After several years with Biff, however, her dream had been shattered. During one of our sessions, she blurted out, This is not what I signed up for. In his book, A Praying Life, Paul Miller said, quote, Our culture shapes our responses to the world, and we find ourselves demanding a pain-free life. Our can-do attitude is turning into relentless self-centeredness. Our self-sufficient attitude is turning into relentless self-centeredness. Mabel was was driving herself deeper into the prison of her own erection that she had cre- of her own creation that she had created. Mabel had drifted so far from the gospel that she believed she deserved better than all that she had. The Bible says we deserve hell, and anything better than hell is a plus. Because Mabel was a Christian, she was doing far better than she deserved, but she wanted more. And unfortunately for Mabel, she had fallen into the spoiled Christian attitude, a trap that does not accommodate suffering. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.29. He says, For it has been granted to you, Mabel, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but you should suffer for His sake. You won't hear Philippians 129 in your Do You Want to Become a Christian class because we don't talk about the suffering aspect of coming to Christ. We just talk about, hey, you want to become saved. Do you want to be a Christian? Do you want to secure your seat in heaven? Paul says that it's been granted to you not only to be saved, but also to suffer. There are two gifts at the point of our salvation. The first is faith, and the second one is personal suffering. The Apostle Peter said it this way in one in two twenty one, of First Peter, for this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. 
Most people who wore the WWJD bracelets in the late 90s did not know that that idea actually came from that text. 1 Peter 2.21, WWJD, what would Jesus do? It was a fad for a minute in the late 90s where we were all just responding, what would Jesus do? That's what we're going to do too. It came from a book that was written around circa 1920. And then out of that book, it was popularized again almost 100 years later later in the late 90s. But that book, the WWJD bracelets, all of that stuff is pointing to a text that points to our calling, and our calling is to suffer. When people talk about their calling, they do not typically reference this passage, but Paul and Peter were clear. Suffering is part of our calling. Of course, God is not safe, but He is good. Peter followed his theology of suffering passage with the conjunction likewise. That's how he finished chapter 2 at verse 25, and then he picks up in chapter 3, verse number 1, and he says, likewise. Likewise Likewise is a conjunction that grammatically joins two thoughts. And so Peter was connecting what he just said about suffering— to his instruction about wives who have husbands who are not responsive to God. He says, likewise, wives, in uh, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Peter brings a New Testament theological view of suffering into our postmodern living rooms. Mabel needed to accept the Christian's view of suffering. Of course, God is not safe. But before I could effectively address Biff's issues with pornography, Mabel had to come to humble repentance regarding her relationship with the Lord, specifically her self-reliant anger, her self-reliant fear, her self-reliant ignorance. All three of those things flowed into a self-reliant spirit, which is what Mabel had. Before we could deal with Biff, hoping that Biff would be willing to uh, engage his issues and to walk out repentance. Mabel need, needed to be in a place of recovery, of restoration. She needed to be in a place of repentance so that she could position herself as a means of grace in Bill's life. And so it's a process of, of working on one, hoping that the other one will come along, But since Mabel is the only one that is before us, I have over the past six chapters been dismantling her worship structure, which was askew, but now it's being built back up the right way. A sound theological substructure, a right understanding of the gospel, and now we're getting into her self-reliance that has been motivated by her relationship with God, which she is addressing now. Chapter 6, our common faith Killers. Again, there are three. You can't trust God when you're angry at Him. You can't trust God when you're afraid of Him. You can't trust God if you have no clue or if you have limited awareness of who He is or there's pockets of ignorance in your relationship with Him. And so here is your call to action. Question number one, how do anger at God, afraid of God, unawareness of God affect your life? I know it does. Because you're just like Mabel, and you're just like me. We're not different. 
All of us have bouts where we struggle with God, and you can put it in one of those three categories, anger and, and fear or just not understanding something. Now, having those, those moments are, are, are fine, but if those moments continue for an extended period, it will sabotage our faith. That's why I called these common faith killers. Would you spend some time thinking about any ongoing anger with God and use whatever synonym that's most descriptive of what anger is in your life toward God? Any fear that you have toward God or unawareness of Him, how does it affect your life? Would you have a conversation about this with a friend? It is just that important because these are the conversations that we don't typically have because these things run under the surface of our lives as it was doing with Mabel all along. Number two, what comes to mind about the dual gifts of salvation and suffering? Now, by the way, the suffering aspect of the dual gifts will tie right back into this temptation to be self-sufficient because we want to be safe, and if we are unsure that God would bring about the safety or the desired outcome that we want, well, the whole suffering thing will drive us into taking care of business, even if it's making unwise decisions, decisions that could lead us into a 50-year prison sentence called marriage. Number three. What would you ask Mabel to do next? As you understand what's going on in her life now, what would be your counsel? Now, again, this is a long-form case study. I've written this out this way on purpose uh, so that people who want to grow in discipleship would not just move through this and, and get answers and, and gain knowledge, but they will actually wrestle with it, they would work with it, and, and really think through it before they move on. And so if that's you, just spend time thinking about this. What, what would you ask Mabel to do next? How would you guide her? Guide her? What would your counsel be? And then number four, when you understand the self-reliant spirit, how do you walk out repentance? And so now you begin, you need to build out a repentance process. It's like, yeah, I, I succumb to the temptation of self-reliance. This is something that I do. There are moments when I, I do struggle with anger with God, afraid of God, sinful, sinful fear of God. And then also there's just things that I do not understand. I'm not omniscient. And, and so I, I struggle and sometimes I can yield to self-sufficiency. And so as you see that in your life, how would you walk out repentance? What would be some of the things that you would want to implement in your life so that you can go the other way? By the way, that would be part of the answer uh, to number three, as I asked, what would you ask Mabel to do next? This is chapter six, our common faith killers. I would encourage you to check out my book, Get Ready. This would be an extended study. This is on marriage for those that are seriously about dating and courting and getting married, you're heading toward the altar. I recommend this book. It will be super helpful. Pastors use this for premarital counseling, but it's also more than a premarriage book. It's also a marriage book. So those who are on the other side of tying the knot, I would encourage you to get, get ready. You will find that it will be quite beneficial. There are questions at the end of each chapter, as all my books are, because it it's not just something to read, but it is a, a tool. It is a reference manual that you can dip into at any time, or you can just read all the way through it. But you will find that it's very practical. But I put the questions in there on purpose because I want you to wrestle with the content as I'm doing here in these nine chapters in this book 
help. My marriage has grown cold. If you haven't downloaded it yet, it's free to you. Go over to our store, look for it, download it. It is yours. Share that link with a friend and let them know that they can have it also. Thanks so much and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com. 